So folks, we've been on a journey the last, uh, well, starting last week and for the next three weeks, well, today and the next two weeks after this, and we've been on a journey and going through the Gospel of Matthew, and, um, and Matthew paints this beautiful portrait of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and so we've entitled this series, The King and His Kingdom, and um, those of you who know that we well, yeah, last week, will remember that Lareko kicked things off for us, and we kind of like, he kicked things off by kind of demonstrating how Matthew paints this beautiful portrait of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And Messiah literally means both king and liberator, or king and savior. And um, you will remember that um, Matthew, at the time that Jesus was there and Matthew was writing this, uh, Israel was under Roman occupation. And so the Romans were kind of like taking over the Jews were almost visitors in their own country and wasn't a pleasant time for them to be there. And so the Jews were quite acutely aware of the promises of God that there would be a Messiah, that there would be someone that would come and liberate them. In their minds, they were thinking that would be someone that would liberate them from the Roman tyranny. They had no idea that this liberation would be so much greater and go so much further than just simply liberating the Jews from the Roman Empire. And so in this context, there's this man called Matthew. And Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a Jew. He was a Levite. And the, Jew, the Levites were meant to be the priestly tribe. But because the, the tax collectors were, in a sense, supporting the Romans and collecting taxes on their behalf, tax collectors were seen as sellouts. They were hated because they would be those that would extort cash from Jews, from their fellow countrymen, on behalf of Rome. And of course, in that process, pocket amounts for themselves. And that's why they became really wealthy. And that's why they were really hated by their fellows. And so in this context, Matthew is chosen by Jesus as one of the 12. And when Jesus chooses him, he knows full well that Matthew, the Levite, the tax collector, would be one of the people that would write one of the four Gospels that would depict his life. And his times. And Matthew, different from all the other gospel writers, has a particular task of addressing the Jews. And so you'll see his gospel is very different from the others. And his gospel has a very different purpose from all of the others. His gospel doesn't spend time talking about Jewish culture and Jewish tradition and the synagogue because the audience that he was writing to would have understood all these things. But Matthew has a purpose, and his purpose is this this Jesus that you crucified is the Messiah. And so when you think about how we try and squeeze Matthew into four weeks, it's not an easy task. And so we eventually settled on this. We said, okay, what we're going to do is on week one, we're going to introduce the fact that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, just the way Matthew did in the first four chapters. And then once we've established that Jesus is the King, we're then going to talk about for the next three weeks how he builds his kingdom. And so that's what we're going to do. Today I'm going to be kicking off with how God established the kingdom values in our hearts. And we're going to then finish off the series by how he equips us and how he empowers us. And so in short, Jesus as the king takes back all authority. And then what he does is he imparts that authority, transfers it to all of us, to you and I, through this process called discipleship. So that we might get on and build God's kingdom on his behalf. And so what did Lareko do? Lareko kicked off last week and he kind of 
just like Matthew does, builds the case, builds the credentials for Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so he starts off in Matthew 1 verse 1, and it starts off like this. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And why does it start off that way? It starts off that way because if Jesus is the son of David, he has legitimate credentials to be king of Israel, to be king of the Jews. And if Jesus is the son of Abraham, he has the legitimate credentials to be the seed that was spoken of that would be a blessing to all the nations. And so Matthew starts building up this case right from the very first chapter. And you might look at this and go, what is Matthew getting at? But in the Jewish culture, this was extremely significant because right there and then he was saying he is from this royal line and he has the, therefore he has the credentials to be the Messiah and to be the king. If he wasn't part of this royal line, it would disqualify him immediately. And so he sets the very first building block in place. But he does it with a difference. Because in Matthew's genealogy, he's got women in there. He's got foreigners in there. He's got some people with dodgy morals. And the message there is just simply this. If there was room in the genealogy of Jesus for all these other types of people, there's room in the kingdom for you and I. And then he goes on and he says, right, now that I've established the genealogy, now he goes and he looks at the Old Testament prophecies. The word fulfilled is used 16 times in the book of Matthew. And each time it refers to some Old Testament prophecy, many of them which were written 400 plus years before Jesus walked on this earth. Prophecies that refer to his exile in Egypt. Prophecies that refer to him being growing up uh, as a young boy in Nazareth. Prophecies that refer to him being sold and betrayed for 30, specifically 30 pieces of silver. And Matthew says not only does he have the right credentials genealogy-wise, but he also fulfills all these Old Testament prophecies. And then what's more, he finalizes by this and he says, then what's more? Not only does he do this, but then he comes and he starts exercising the authority of the king. He calls 12 men that were quite happy in their careers, and they drop everything and they follow him. What authority. He, he, he decides to kind of take a walk out on the water, commands the storms to cease. Nature even responds to his authority. What authority does this man carry? He drives out demons. He heals the sick. This man is establishing his credentials as king of kings and lord of lords. And then Lareka, I love that he left us with a challenge. And he said, now that he has wrestled this authority back from the enemy and he has given it to each and every single one of us, he says, why are we so quick to abscond and hand this authority back to no one in particular, but kind of like, okay, God, get on with it. And today, hopefully we're going to pick up on that point and find out why it is that we sometimes are a little resistant to walk in God's authority. Because folks, let's face it, this authority is like a mini nuclear reaction. This stuff is not to be toyed with and messed with. And like a nuclear reaction, you can either produce a whole lot of good with it, it can be used to create energy, or it can create a whole lot of bad. And so what Jesus is doing is he sets the tone and he says, before I can trust you to walk and exercise this authority, you need to understand a few things. You need to understand these new kingdom laws and these new kingdom principles. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. It happens to be one of five teaching sections of the book of Matthew. 
And in these teaching sections, we see that Jesus is teaching and equipping and educating his disciples on what it means to be a kingdom builder. I have the authority. I'm going to give that to you. But before I give you the authority, before you, I set you loose to go and change the world, we need to do certain things. These are the most critical things. Because before you can go and build my kingdom externally, I need to build my kingdom inside of you internally. And so what we see Matthew doing, what Jesus does, is he sits with his disciples and he says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This passage of scripture is now famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the part of the passage of scripture where Jesus does this first teaching discourse to establish kingdom principles in the hearts of his disciples. And in a nutshell, what are these kingdom principles? First and foremost, he's telling the disciples that who you are is more important than what you know. And he's telling them that what you are is more important than what you do. He's saying, guys, you've got to understand something. This stuff's exciting. This stuff is wild. This stuff is powerful. But in order for you to be effective externally, I need to build my kingdom internally in your hearts first. And so he begins to teach his disciples. And he starts and he says, right, guys, in order for us to do this, before I teach you how to preach, before I teach you how to work miracles, before I teach you how to work great acts of faith, before I introduce you to the Holy Spirit, that's going to be this, like, this kind of this nuclear reaction inside of you, before all of that stuff, I'm going to establish my kingdom principles inside of you. And so he starts, and he starts in Matthew chapter 5, and if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along, but I'm going to put the key scriptures up here. I would encourage you this week to take Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7, and read them in the context of which I've just created, where Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and his primary purpose is to establish the kingdom of God in their hearts before he lets them loose that they can build the kingdom of God externally. And so this part... Matthew 5, verse 3 to 13, we know as the Beatitudes. And we could spend four weeks just on the Beatitudes if we tried, but we're not going to do that. The point that I want to make first and foremost is the point that Jesus made very, very clear. In the first 10 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the word blessed nine times. And what he's trying to convey is he says, disciples... As kingdom builders, as my disciples, you are blessed. But what does it mean to be blessed? To be blessed, if I say you've got my blessing, what do you have? You've got my approval, right? You've got my consent. You've got, you've got my authority to go on and do it with my, even in my name. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, as my disciples, as kingdom builders, understand this, you carry my approval. You carry my blessing. You, you, you kind of engage with me. You, act, you activate that blessing on your lives. And effectively, what I'm telling you is I'm telling you, you've got my thumbs up as my kingdom builders. Now, after I'd been courting Belinda, and we agreed that we loved each other and we wanted to get married, I went and did a very important thing. I went to her father and I asked him for his blessing. Why? Because we wanted his approval. 
I didn't ask him for his permission because I wasn't about to change my mind. But I did want his blessing. And so when I sat down with him, I said, Sir, your daughter and I would love to get married. I love her very, very much, and I will look after her, I promise. Can we have your blessing? Can we have your approval? Folks, what we need to realize is that as kingdom builders, as disciples, we carry the blessing, the anointing, the acceptance, the approval of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Friends, He has blessed you. There's nothing more you need to do by entering into His kingdom, by receiving Him as your Lord and Savior, you carry His approval. And so He was saying to His disciples, you are blessed. You carry my approval. Secondly, in Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, as kingdom builders, you are effective. Now this is another important passage of scripture, one that we know very, very well. Because he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand that it gives light to everyone in the, in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now friends, have you noticed something about salt and light? Salt and light are effective not because of something they do. There is no secondary process that takes place for salt and light to be effective. They don't need to be activated in some other way. They are effective simply by virtue of the inherent properties. Salt, you just sprinkle it on food. You don't have to kind of do anything. You don't click your heels or kind of like put it in the air. You just sprinkle it on and it brings out the natural flavor, doesn't it? With light, you, you, you inject light into a situation. Nothing else has to happen. Simply by light showing up, darkness is expelled. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, folks, you need to understand something. When you carry the kingdom of God in your heart, you just show up in situations and solutions are activated. There's nothing else that you need to work and do and process, etc. Simply by carrying my anointing, simply by carrying my kingdom, like salt and like light, when you show up, solutions start flowing. Friends, we are the solution on this planet. Not because we have supernatural skills and abilities, which we have, but simply because we carry internally the virtues, the inherent properties of Christ inside of us. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, guys, you are effective like salt and like light because I dwell inside of you. Thirdly, Jesus shows his disciples that it's important that they embrace not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And he does this in Matthew 5, 17 to 37. And he says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now in law, those of us, those of us doing an LLB or those of us that have studied law, will tell us that there's two aspects. There's something called substance and form. And the substance of the law is kind of what the original intent was. What was it that the parties intended? What was it that they were trying to achieve? And then the form is the way that it was then recorded in the actual legal agreement. 
Now, a good lawyer will try and get the form to match the substance as accurately as possible. And the more they correlate, the less likely there is for confusion and possibly legal risk to the process. But even the best lawyers cannot correlate form and substance completely and entirely. And that's why Jesus is telling his disciples that when there's a discrepancy between the spirit and the letter, between the substance and the form, spirit and substance trump letter and form. Because he's saying, guys, yes, my law said, do not murder. But the spirit behind that law is not that you just kind of like stay on the side of murder. The spirit of that law is that we constantly walk in love. And so Jesus is saying, he's saying, guys, if you hold on to the spirit of my kingdom, the spirit of my law, you're going to be so, you're going to be so far from the letter that you're never going to feel foul of breaching that in any way. And that's why it says, guys, if there's a choice to be made, hold on to the spirit. Hold on to the substance because it always trumps the letter and the form. And so it's not about not murdering. It's about, God, how can I walk in your perfect love? And how can I be that love to a desperate, dying, and thirsty world? Number four, Matthew 5, verse, 45, verse 38 to 48. Another passage we know so well. We can quote it. But my goodness, is this one hard to live? He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That part's easy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see, as disciples of God, we are called to be cooperative people. We are called to be those people that are going to go the extra mile. We are called to be those people that are going to try and find the middle ground. We are called to be peacemakers. We are called to be those that are going to see, well, God, show me areas of overlap and alignment and agreement. Not that we focus on the disagreement and the misalignment, but God, help us see where there's overlap and agreement. And Father, help us move the conversation into those places, even if it means putting our needs below those of others. My sister and I have birthdays quite close together, two years apart. And my mom, to kind, you know, kind of like save costs, would do a joint birthday party in between. Mine would be the end of July, hers would be the beginning of August. And so kind of it was two weeks apart, and in the week in between, she would do our joint birthday parties. And I would have my list of friends, and she'd have her list of friends. And one year, I don't know, it must have been 10 and 8 or something like that, I remember looking at her list and I went, Bev, I don't understand. Of your 15 friends, there's three friends here that I... Why would you invite them? And I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, because these three girls are being mean to me at school. And I'm hoping that if I invite them to my birthday party, we can be friends afterwards. And I was, oh my goodness. And it has stuck with me for the last 40 years of my life. You see, folks, that's what God calls us to do. He wants us to be cooperative people that are trying to find the middle ground. And even though it costs us, we prepare to say, God, we will go the extra mile. Disciples are authentic. Matthew 6, verse 1 to 18. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. But when you pray, do not do, be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. 
But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees that is done in secret will reward you. You see, folks, when Jesus is building the kingdom of God into his disciples, he says, guys, there's no hypocrisy here. Because real disciples, true disciples are authentic. True disciples do this because I command them to do it. True disciples are ones that are sold out to me to such an extent that they do what I ask them to do because they love me with all their heart. Not because it just seems good, looks good, feels good, or makes me look good. And now in the times, remember, to be seen praying in public was a really cool thing. Might not be that cool today. But what is cool today? What is seen to be really cool today? What tweet makes me look really good? What Facebook post makes me look like the business? And is that authentic and is that real? Is that the kingdom of God inside of me? Or is that me just trying to kind of like, well, it makes me look good in this particular situation. As disciples, God is calling us to be authentic and real. Which is why disciples prioritize kingdom values. Don't... In, in, in 6, 24 to 34, Jesus says the following. He says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. You see, folks, as disciples, we value the kingdom of God before anything else. We value the kingdom of God before wealth. We value the kingdom of God before success. We value the kingdom of God before fame. And we even value the kingdom of God before our own well-being. And our own health, and you know, and our own health, and 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 um, and in that way, friends, what God is saying is He's saying, "Are you going to prioritize Me? Are you pursuing Me? Because real disciples, real kingdom builders, pursue Me before and beyond anything else." I remember a friend, a brother that I'd been kind of speaking to and that I'd gotten to know, and he was sharing with me that. How in the times past, in his business, he would experience incredible times of prosperity and then incredible difficult times. And each time he would go through these extremes, he would check his heart and say, God, is this because of me? What's happening here? And he realized very soon that it wasn't a result of him being good or him being bad, but this prosperity and this blessing or this what seemed like prosperity and blessing, these ups and downs was God preparing him and challenging him at each time to say, is Am I your priority? Is my kingdom your priority? And he couldn't quite understand why his business would go through these cycles, but he learned to trust God in the feast and he learned to trust God in the famine. He didn't know why until many years later, when his business was at risk, when somebody was trying to steal millions and millions of dollars from him. And in that moment, once he'd gotten over the initial shock and horror of what was happening, he was amazed at how quickly he kind of said, God, you know what? If I lose all of this, it's just money. And if someone steals my money, they can't steal my joy. They can't steal my, the kingdom of God inside of me. Not that he wanted to lose that, but he was very quickly going, God, if that's why I went through those ups and downs in the past to prepare me for this moment today, thank you, Father. And I remember looking at this guy and seeing the peace of God all over him in the midst of what should be an incredibly desperate situation. And I said, Father, the peace that that man has got in his heart right now, I know he's not prepared to trade for anything in the world. See, folks, when we prioritize the kingdom, 
all these other things will be added to us. Number seven, disciples are approachable. The Word of God says don't judge or you will be judged. And friends, we need to be those kinds of people that when sinners are in crisis, they go, man, I need to seek you out. I want to be the kind of person that when somebody is in a crisis, they go, I need Dorian. I need to know what he's got to say. I need to know what he's going to do because I know that when I go to him, I'm going to feel the love of God and not his judgment. Folks, I remember two years ago, I'm not very proud of this, but it was necessary for me to go through this. I remember two years ago, I was walking around the zone and I was approached by a refugee from one of the countries up north. And he was here, he, look, he looked like a wonderful, you know, he's well-dressed, etc. but he'd obviously hit some hard times. And he asked me if there was any way that I could help him out with some cash. So I did. But then I proceeded to lecture him for another five minutes on his responsibility as a, as a man, on his responsibility as a Christian, on how he needed to press into God, take responsibility, and, you know, how is he going to fix this? And nothing I said was wrong. But when I left, I felt horrible. And as I was processing this, I said, Lord, why am I feeling so bad about this? And God just said, because I told you to love him, not to lecture him. And I realized in that moment, folks, that even if he needed to hear those things, me loving him unconditionally the way Jesus loved him and blessing him and encouraging him would probably have had a greater effect in him taking responsibility than my lecture, than my kind of judgment on what he should or shouldn't have been doing as a man and as a believer. And in that moment, I repented and I said, Lord, let me be the man in every one of those situations that will hear your heart and hear your spirit. And that's why I wear this just one badge, this one, one bracelet, because I want to be reminded every single day that I want to be the man of God in that situation, that I want to be approachable, that I want to be the one that people will run to to say, help me, I need help, I need to know what Jesus would do in this situation. And that means that I say, Lord, not, not what I think needs to be done, but Father, what is your heart for this person in this moment? Number eight, disciples know how to trust God. You know, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door Will be opened. Friends, disciples, kingdom builders, are bold enough to ask, and when they do, they are secure enough in their relationship with God that they trust that He will deliver. Some of you know the story. I'm going to tell it again because it's just, it reminds me constantly of His goodness and His greatness and how we need to trust Him. Belinda and I had decided that we wanted to go and spend one year in, in London. It was 1998. We had got our jobs lined up, we had got our visas lined up, we'd got our passports in order, we'd got our, we'd got our cash and our wallets, and our, you know, everything was ready, and we were at the airport to get on a plane, we were going to be gone for 12 months. And at the airport, Belinda's bag gets snatched, and in her bag are her passports, our wallets, our visas, and I'm going, oh my goodness. And she comes up to me and says, Dorian, my bag's just been snatched, but... I prayed, and God said it's going to be okay. <laughs> I, I said something along the lines of, that's nice, my darling. Let me go and see what I can do. <laughs> Not my proudest moment, okay? And then I frantically started running around to find police, and da-da-da-da-da. And by the time I'd frantically stopped running around to find police, 
the bag had been discovered 10 kilometers away from the airport in a parking lot, and inside the bag, her bag were our passports, our wallets, our visas, and three hours later we were on a plane to London, and I just realized, God, you are faithful. And I thank God for my wife because she, amen, she was the one that said, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And it's been an example to me ever since then till now. And so I'm looking for the opportunity where I can go up to her one day and say, Honey, this has happened, but God said it's going to be okay. <laughs> Number nine, folks, disciples bear good fruit. Watch out for the false prophets because they come to you in sheep's clothing. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And so, folks, we need to realize that good fruit comes from good trees. Bad fruit comes from bad trees. And as a disciple, as a kingdom builder, you will bring forth good fruit. You know what? You can plant an apple seed, and no matter how you treat that seedling as a banana tree, you will never get bananas. You can put it in a hothouse because bananas like heat. You can fertilize it with the stuff bananas like. You can water it, overwater it for an apple tree, but give it as much water as banana trees like. But guess what? When that tree grows and starts bearing fruit, it's not going to give you a banana. It's not going to give you good apples because you've treated it like a banana tree, but it's not giving you bananas. Folks, in the same way, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, listen, because you are my disciples, because you are kingdom builders, you will bring forth good fruit. Not because of what you do, although doing good stuff is important, but you'll bring forth good fruit because of who lives inside of you. When you establish kingdom principles in your life, friends, God just comes out. And with that God coming out comes good fruit. Finally, friends, disciples are consistent. And therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain comes down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and when the rains come down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and the beat against that house, it fell with a great, great crash. So finally, Jesus teaches his disciples that true followers, true believers, true disciples are spiritually stable and consistent. Why? Because they not only hear the word of God, but they do the word of God too. When I had the privilege of visiting Israel, we were told that storms in Israel are not that frequent, but when they hit, they can be incredibly, incredibly severe. Which means that for years and years and years, you could have a house on the rock standing alongside a house on the sand, and they will both exist and look the same and coexist, and they will both look great until that first storm hits. And in the same way, folks, in the kingdom, you may find two types of people. And they will coexist for many, many, many years until that first crisis hits. Jesus says, you will know my disciples. Because when that crisis hits, there's a stability and a consistency inside of them because of what I have built inside of their hearts. And God is telling you now, folks, that when that crisis hits your life, you will stand because of what he has built inside of you. And so, friends... This new kingdom law, from internal to external, 
Firstly, we are blessed. We carry his approval. We are effective because of the inherent qualities of Christ inside of us. We embrace the spirit of the law and we prioritize that over the letter. We are cooperative. We look for that middle ground and we want to be the people that can kind of find solutions, peacemakers. We're authentic. We do it because it's written in our heart, not because it seems like it's the cool thing to do. We prioritize kingdom values above all else. We serve God and use money. We don't serve money and use God. We prioritize those kingdom values. We're approachable as disciples. We know how to trust God. We press in and we're not afraid to ask Him for things because we know how to trust Him for it. And we bear good fruit. Not because of special talents and abilities, but because of who God has placed inside of our lives. And finally, we disciples, or we as disciples, we are consistent because we want to be spiritually stable and mature because we not only hear the word of God, but we do that word as well. Amen. Let's pray together. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we thank you, Father, that you are building your kingdom, but that kingdom starts by what you're establishing inside of our hearts. If you're here today and you're saying, Dorian, you know what? I've never, I've never experienced that approval, God's approval in my life. I actually don't know what that feels like. Maybe you're saying, I don't know what it means to be blessed because I've never been faced with this decision to make Jesus Christ my Lord and my Savior. Or maybe I did once upon a time, but my goodness, they were so far away. And to be honest, He's not Lord and Savior right now. If that's you, I want to pray for you this morning. If you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling the Spirit of God just tugging your heart saying, today's the day you're going to get God's approval. Today's the day that I want to make you, that, I, that, that you want to make Him your Lord and your King and your Savior. If that's you, will you just quickly raise your hand and wave it at me? Because I want to know if there's somebody here that wants me to pray for them today. Thank you. I see that hand, my brother. I see that hand. Is there anybody else here today? I see that hand, my sister at the back. I see that. I see that hand, my sister at the back on the left. Guys, this is the most critical moment this morning. Nothing else matters but this moment because this is the most critical. Thank you, my brother. I see that hand on the left. I don't want to push this too much longer, but I don't want to miss one person if you know that today Today you want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. It starts by saying, Father, I want to make you my Lord and my King. Church, could we please stand to our feet? And if you raised your hand, you know who you are, would you please come to the front? Because I just want to pray with you. I just want to impart a bit of God's love on you. Could you just come to your front, just bring your stuff with you? If you've got your stuff there, just bring it with you. And let's just give them a hand, church. Please come on out. My sister at the back, please come on through. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. My brother, congratulations, man. Congratulations, my brother. Amen. You here? No? No? Hallelujah, my sister. Amen. This is the most critical, the most amazing thing. Hallelujah. So good to see you guys here. Lord, I just pray for these amazing people. Come on, let's get around. Let's get really close together here. Lord, I thank you for these amazing people. 
And I thank you for the commitment that they're making to you today, Lord, that they want to make you their Lord and their Savior. Church, let's just say this prayer together. I'm going to just pray a few, uh, pray, say a few words. just want you to repeat this after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you this morning. Be my God. Be my King. Be my Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a praise offering.